Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. In uh, 1971, Ted Geisel wrote an epic poem cautioning about the dangers of poor environmental management. Now, you may not know the name of the poet right off the top of your head, and, and likely you wouldn't call the book an epic poem either. However, you would know Dr. Seuss, and you probably have heard of the Lorax. In the book, the titular character served as the spokesperson for the truffle trees, the raw materials that were absolutely necessary to create the ridiculously popular need. The Lorax said of himself, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. Now, we understand that truffle trees don't really have a voice and therefore they need a spokesperson. However, we find ourselves looking today at another tree that speaks loud and clear. Our journey through the scriptures began three months ago, and, and very early in this journey, we were asked to consider a tree, a, a tree that, uh, uh, that, that was known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and in this tree, there was but one prohibition that was there so early in the journey of the human race. You see, that tree spoke. Not literally, the tree itself did not have a voice, but it certainly had a message that communicated loud and clear. It spoke of a, of a moral choice. It represented the, the simple decision. Do we follow the path of the Lord, or do we follow our own way? In our journey, we've said all along, do we follow God's instructions, or do we follow the deception of the serpent? That tree in the garden has a voice, and that tree in the garden declares our condemnation in no uncertain terms. Well, today, we find ourselves looking at another tree, yet it's not nearly as appealing. The Bible tells us that Eve in the garden found that the tree that, that was the center of attention was, was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. However, the tree that we look at today is not at all delightful. In fact, we might even go so far as to say that the tree we look at today was absolutely horrifying. The tree we're looking at today is not desired. Instead, you might even say that the tree we look at today is scorned, rejected, it's been stripped of all of its branches, its life-giving fruit and leaves. And it's been fashioned into a shape that is guaranteed to bring death. Yet in spite of the, the grotesque nature of this tree, Christians have been drawn to it to behold it. Indeed, may I be so bold to say that we embrace it. Yet in spite of the grotesque nature of 
this tree, we find ourselves drawn to the cross, to the fact that, that over the years we've sang songs about the tree that have explored the attraction that the cross has for us. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left His glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till my trophies at last I lay down, I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. So this morning, as, as we consider this tree situated on a hill just outside of Jerusalem, let us listen as this tree continues to speak. This morning, our scripture reading comes from John chapter 19, and we're focusing on one verse, verse 30. But I want to read more of John chapter 19 just to gather the context of our focal verse today. So if you've got your Bible open to John chapter 19, I want to begin reading in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. God, I'm grateful for these words, as hard as they are. They speak to the very pit of our being 
as followers of Jesus. Lord, we pray that today as we consider that old tree outside of Jerusalem, the tree on which our Savior gave his life, that we might consider its impact and we might embrace its significance. We pray these things on Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a couple of weeks ago, on Easter Sunday actually, I sat down with my youngest son and we did something that I had not done with him before. We watched the Passion of the Christ together. I had not taken the time to watch that movie in several years and I was not ready to show it to him until he had gotten a little bit older. Yet in spite of the fact that I'd seen the movie before, I knew exactly what to expect. I, I still found myself reliving the gamut of emotions that came the very first time I saw it. Disgust, anger, frustration, humility, and even to some extent fear as I realized the wrath he received was what I was due. By the end of the movie, if you've seen it, you know you're left emotionally spent, exhausted, having endured that film. But there's a scene at the end when, when Mary is holding Jesus' body. There at the foot of the cross, blood smeared on her face. You get the very real sense that the only right response to the spectacle of the cross is to collapse at the foot of the cross and be humbled by the love that was poured out that day. You're, you're likely familiar with the events that led to this awful day and this awful tree. After Jesus declared, we talked about this last week, that times were fulfilled, that the kingdom was at hand. He began a very public season of ministry, about three years. He spent that time preaching and teaching and doing miracles and casting out demons and showing himself to be the one who could truly defeat all the works of the devil. At the same time, he, he challenged the false religion and legalism that had grown out of the law of Moses. The, the simple saving faith that Abraham had had turned into a man-centered, works-based, religious enterprise that only further revealed that man's very best efforts at righteousness would always come up short. Jesus revealed through his actions and through his words that there was a better way. However, Jesus, in doing so, ran afoul of those who were looking for a different kind of Messiah. They didn't want a suffering servant. They didn't want that. They wanted a conquering king. And while Jesus would fulfill both roles, the Israelites had wrongly identified the enemy. You see, Rome to them was the evil empire. It wasn't the system that undergirded Rome that was the problem. You see, there was a system that undergirded all of those empires in those days. It wasn't the empire itself. It wasn't Rome. It was the serpent, the one that showed himself in the garden, continued to show himself throughout the story. The Jews were looking for a political conquest, but Jesus came on the scene not to destroy the works of Rome, but to destroy the works of the devil. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus spelled it out very quickly. He, he also said to the crowds, when you see 
a cloud rising in the west. You say it once, a, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And, and when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And so it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the, the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You see, eventually, these adoring crowds that gathered around Jesus began to turn. In some ways, they turned within a week from the shouts of praise on Palm Sunday. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the time Friday rolled around, they were shouting this phrase, Staro Theto. Staro Theto, which means let him be crucified. In spite of Governor Pilate's objections, in spite of his efforts to try to placate the crowd, Jesus eventually was turned over to executioners, and there on the place of the skull, as John records it, he was executed right there between two criminals. All the authorities, the Jewish leaders, believed that they were silencing a madman. This, this Jesus who, who claimed he could do so much that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it. This Jesus who equated himself to be God. This Jesus who must have been clearly irrational and out of his mind. In all reality, what they were doing was helping to accomplish the purposes that God had established even before the foundations of the world. This morning, I want to briefly look at four things that happened on the cross that day. Four things that happened on the cross that day as we consider the cross our next step in the journey. At the cross, Jesus secured ultimate victory over the serpent. Uh, we've been saying a lot over the last few weeks that it's felt like the serpent's been winning. And instead of following the Lord, the, the Israelites like to go their own way. Instead of righteous kings on David's throne, most of the kings were, were evil. Instead of worshiping the one true God, the people of God frequently pursued false idols. As we open the New Testament, we find that the people of God are under the oppressive rule of a foreign magistrate. There's no king, a, a son of David on the throne. There's, there's no sense that they're winning. It feels, in fact, the serpent has been winning. But the cross reminds us that God has had a plan from the beginning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we, we read these words. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, it's not that there was this epic battle between good and evil that had been raging for thousands of years, and God finally got the upper hand. That's not how this worked. This is exactly what Jesus said in our verse from last week. The kairos, the time 
is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. It took its time. It took many days and years and centuries to get there, but the time is fulfilled. It was the season that the serpent would be defeated. At the cross, Jesus guarantees ultimate victory over the serpent. At the cross, we find that Jesus fulfills the promises of the new covenant. We're very familiar with the covenants that God has made with his people as, as the means by which he related to his people in the Old Testament. But in so many ways, the covenants were always one-sided. Humans had a notoriously difficult time keeping the promises that God asked them to make. If you remember that strange image from the covenant that God made with Abraham, God told Abraham to gather a certain uh, set of animals and split them. And, and in that day, in order to make a covenant, the parties of the covenant would pass through these split carcasses. And by doing so, they were signifying that if they broke the terms of the covenant, that their fate would be the same as the fate of those animals. Yet when God made the covenant with Abraham, Abraham never once passed through the split animals. God did. Signifying the fact that God was going to keep both sides of the covenant. So at the cross, we see Jesus suffering under the penalty of that broken covenant. He is the one who, who bears the pain and bears the cost of that covenant not being kept. But at the cross, we see a new covenant initiated. The prophets looked forward to that new covenant. If you remember from Jeremiah 31, God promised that a new covenant was coming. And, and on the night before Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples as they shared the Passover meal that the bread and the wine that they drank represented the new covenant that was at hand. And on the cross, Jesus satisfied those promises. Thirdly, at the cross, Jesus served as our substitute. We go back a couple of weeks when we talked about the suffering servant in Isaiah. The, the Bible says God laid upon him this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. The Bible says that we are healed by his stripes. The apostle Peter said it this way, He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The disciples understood that on the cross, Jesus was taking our punishment, was bearing the cost of our sin. They understood that he did it on our behalf. The apostle Paul declared, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might know the righteousness of God. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, he literally became sin. He suffered the consequences of that sin. He cried out under the anguish of those consequences, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Most interesting things about Jesus' statement is if you go back and read all of what Jesus says in the Gospels, he never personally refers to the first person of the Trinity as God. It's always my Father. Yet on the cross, instead of, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He was forsaken because he literally bore the weight of our sin. He was the one who would stand in our place for our sins. He died the death that we were due. And he offers to declare us righteous through his blood. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he did. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 remind us of that. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Finally, at the cross, a final satisfactory sacrifice was offered. As we have seen, for centuries, sacrifices were being paid that always, every single time, pointed forward. Every year, every month, every week, every day, sacrifices were offered that always pointed forward and they were never enough. They never sufficed fully. They never permanently dealt with sin. They constantly had to be offered to constantly deal with sin. At the cross, all that changed. See, when Jesus breathed his last, declaring, it is finished. There was finally, finally, a sacrifice that could sufficiently deal with sin. Up until this point, every lamb, every bull, every single one came up short. But at the cross, the wages of sin are death, and a perfect death was given to perfectly and finally pay the penalty for sin. The next day, for the first time in history... No sacrifice was needed. The next week, no more blood to be shed. The next month, the temple could have, could have cleaned the blood up. It was done. The next year, it's, it's Day of Atonement. Don't we need to offer something? No, the sacrifice still stands, and it still stands to this day. The penalty has been paid once and for all. A final sacrifice was made. And all that Jesus asks that we do is to not forget the cost. And from time to time, the church gathers together and they celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper to remember the blood, to remember the body, not to spill it or break it again. I won't lie, I look forward to the day when we can gather as the church to celebrate the supper again. To remember in that tangible way the sacrifice of our Lord through the elements of the supper. At the cross, it's finished. 
You know, one of the starkest images of our sin in the New Testament is found in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, debt's always been something that human beings can understand. We all understand if we have debt, we understand what, what that's like to carry. We also understand what a blessing it would be for debts to be paid. So we understand the idea of debt. And so here Paul likens the wages of our sin to a debt that cannot be paid. However, the cross is finished. The debt that Paul says has stood against us. What he's saying is it's, it's, it's immovable. We can't get around it. It constantly stands against us. It, it hounds us. It dogs us. It, it won't leave us alone. Imagine the debt collector that calls, nagging you on the phone to get you to pay a debt that you know you can't pay. It's been standing against us. But there at the cross where the Savior died, there's no body there. But Paul says, nailed eternally to the cross is a certificate of our sin debt. And there written in bold red letters by the blood of the perfect sacrifice that's been paid on our behalf is written the words, Paid in full. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. If you're listening today and you understand the crushing weight of your sin debt, the offer extended to you today is to have the certificate of that debt nailed to the cross, and the payment of that debt made by a Savior who loves you, who adores you, who gave his life for you, and wants you to have eternal life with him. By faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his shed blood and his resurrection over death, you too can be saved and have your debt, your sin debt, paid. In just a moment, we're going to give you a, an opportunity to respond and to do so in a way that we can follow up with you, even if you're at home in living rooms watching. We'd love the opportunity to chat with you more about what it means to follow Christ. We'd love to have the opportunity to celebrate with you. If today you'd like to see your sin debt paid once and for all, would you join me in prayer, please? God, I thank you for finishing. I thank you, Lord, for... For the fact that 
the debt is paid, it is nailed to the cross, and we declare with Jesus, it is finished. I pray that if there's any here today listening in their homes or in days to come who on this day need to follow you to see their debt paid, would they have the courage to pick up the phone and call us or to send us an email that we can follow up and share with them what it means to have those debts paid. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.